we spoke about the uh, main features of uh, Tsongkhapa's unique view of the four tenant system as just a foundation for being able to understand his actual uh, presentation of each of these four systems. And we also uh, saw that each of these four systems build on the previous ones. Therefore, it's very important not to skip ahead and leave out any of them. If we really want to understand uh, the deepest view of Prasangika as Tsongkhapa presents it, we need to understand the presentation of each of the uh, earlier, less sophisticated views first, one after the other. So let's start with Vaibhashika. This is uh, one of the uh, Hinayana, so-called Hinayana views. So according to Vaibhashika, what establishes that anything exists is its substantial nature. And the substantial nature is what enables something to perform a function. So how do we establish that uh, something exists? It exists because it does something. It performs a function. That's like, I think, therefore I am. I it's perform the function of thinking, therefore I exist. I am. I work. I am a, a good uh, citizen that produces things. And therefore, that means that I actually exist. And according to Vaibhashika, even static phenomenon, things that don't change, that don't actually do produce anything, uh, also have substantially established existence because they are the cause, in a certain sense, of our cognition of them. So Vaibhashika is unique in asserting this. And the refutation in Vaibhashika is that a person is an Atman, the Atman as asserted in the non-Buddhist Indian schools. And this Atman has three qualities. It is static in the sense that it doesn't uh, change. It's not affected by anything. It is partless. So it's like a monolith, either the size of the universe, you know, Atman is Brahma type of thing, or a tiny little speck. And it can exist independently of a body or mind. In other words, independently of aggregates. And what this means is that uh, they assert that it's possible to gain liberation. And with liberation, moksha, it's called, uh, the Atman exists independently of a body and mind. And in each lifetime until liberation, that Atman is going to uh, inhabit a body and mind as its uh, residence, and it will possess it as uh, something that it, as its possession, and it will control it and use it as if it were some object of use that can manipulate the body and mind, use the body to do things, use the mind to understand things. Uh, so that is what is being refuted, that the self that you can establish that a self exists in that way. Self exists because it is an Atman, an Atman exists. And this negation is known as the coarse selflessness of a person. And that selflessness, that negation, is that the existence of a person cannot be established 
by claiming that exists, that it exists as an Atman. And it can't be established like that because it's not true. Однако, this is the Vaibhashika position in the next tenet system, the Sautrantikas. They say you can't establish it like that because there's no such thing as that kind of Atman. Here in Vaibhashika, the first step in, in gating is to just understand that it's not true. So it's easier to understand that it's not true than to understand there's no such thing. So we go step by step. Uh, this type of negation, that it's not true, is uh, known as an implicative negation or an affirming negation. So what is that? Once the words of the negation have negated what's to be negated, after that, it literally, in the definition, it says it throws, so it implies a conceptual cognition, conceptual cognition which understands two things, an affirmation and a negation, or more precisely, an affirmation phenomenon and a negation phenomenon. Table is an affirmation phenomenon. You just have to know table. Not a table. You have to know table before to know that it's not a table. So that's a negation phenomenon. So what's the example? Because this is abstract, the definition. So we have to give an example in order to understand what it is uh, talking about. The object on the table is not a tablecloth. Okay? So what's the <laughs> object to be refuted is tablecloth. So the, if we've refuted tablecloth, it's not a tablecloth. What do we now understand? One is an affirmation phenomenon. There's an object on the table. And one is a negation phenomenon. It's not a tablecloth. Okay, so that is an implicative <laughs> negation or an affirming negation. So here, what we're talking about, I mean, what it's referring, the, start that sentence again. Here, the, uh, Implicative negation is the self of a person is not an Atman. So when we negate Atman, then we understand there's a self of a person, that's the affirmation, but it's not an Atman. That's the negation. It doesn't exist as an Atman. So because of that, we can't establish that I exist based on the reason because I exist as an Atman, because I'm not. An Atman. In other words, if you use the reason of uh, I, <laughs> I exist as Superman as a reason to prove that I exist, I exist because I'm Superman, then obviously that's wrong because I'm not Superman. Например, если я пытаюсь... And the Sartre will say, well, there's no such thing as a Superman. So this is how we start to uh, understand negations and refutations. So the self cannot be established as existing, as, you know, as a person that I'm static. I never change. I'm not affected by anything. Because if we examine ourselves over our lives, we've changed. I'm no longer a baby. For example, right? I don't act like a baby anymore, hopefully. So we've changed. 
So it's not true that I'm static. And it's not true that I'm partless. I have parts. I have a body. I have a mind. Even that way of expressing it, I have, is weird. So, but more precisely, I'm not just a body. I'm not just a mind. I'm not just, uh, um, you know, my emotions. I have many, many parts. I'm not just my hands. Uh, and we uh, uh, cannot exist separately from a body and a mind, right? You take away the body, you take away the mind. I mean, where am I? So what we understand with this refutation is that I am, you know, there's a me, there's a self. It's not static, not partless, not independent. So then we will understand that the self is something which is non-static, which is changing all the time, has parts, and is an imputation. Remember, we discussed imputation on the aggregates, the body, mind, emotions, etc. So that's the absolute basis that we have to understand. What are the characteristics of the self as asserted in Buddhism? There is such a thing as a self. It's an imputation. Like aging is an imputation on something. It's an imputation on body, mind, etc. It's not separate from it. And just as the body and the mind and emotions change all the time, I change all the time. And just as there are many parts of the basis, I have many parts. Now, this uh, belief that we exist as an Atman, this is something which is doctrinally based, it's called. In other words, somebody had to teach it to us, and we had to learn it and believe it. The dog doesn't think, believe that. So it, you know, it's the whole package of what we accept, you know, that, the Atman, that there, we exist as this Atman with all these qualities. And if we haven't learned it in this lifetime, according to Buddhism, we have infinite past lifetimes, and we must have learned it in some other lifetime. It is just sort of under the surface, unconscious. Everybody has this. So how do we know that we have this if we didn't learn it in this lifetime? This is an interesting question. It's because conceptually we can isolate each of the three qualities, although they come all together in one package of the Atman. We can think in terms of, well, am I static? We can think in terms of, am I partless? Think in terms of, is there a me? that is separate from the body and mind and feels alienated from it. That's the feeling that you get when you think that I exist separately. I can't relate to my body. I can't relate to my feelings. I'm alienated from my feelings. So that's called incorrect consideration. We incorrectly consider something which changes all the time, our body, as being static, as not changing. We incorrectly consider something that has parts to have parts. We incorrectly consider something that is dependent on other things to be independent. And that either can be doctrinally based, somebody could have taught us that, or it could automatically arise. Everybody feels that. You go to sleep at night and you get up in the morning, here I am, same me, haven't changed. So it feels like that. 
But we have changed when we wake up in the morning. We're one day closer to our death, as Buddhism would say. Jolly thought. <laughs> A jolly thought. Jolly? Jolly. It's, I'm being sarcastic, ironic. Oh, sorry. It's not, <laughs> it's not funny, but it is true that we're one day closer to our death. So <laughs> it's very helpful to identify within ourselves each of these three incorrect considerations. It's hard to just think, do I, do I really think that I'm an Atman? But we can really work with each of these three aspects in order to relate this refutation, the Vaibhashika position, to our lives, to our own experience. This is what is essential for being able to appreciate each of these systems. You have to relate it to, to your own personal experience, how we misconceive of the way in which we exist. You know, I exist because I've never, I haven't changed. You know, I'm always the same. This is silly. What establishes that I exist? If we say it's because when I get up in the morning, it's the same me, I haven't changed. That is not a valid reason for establishing. You can't, that doesn't prove that I exist because in fact I have changed. I've gotten one day closer to my death. And even though it feels like it's the same me, I haven't changed. I'm not a different person after all. So there's a continuity there. <laughs> Nevertheless, we have changed. So there are... Uh, very wonderful exercises that we can do. So let me lead you through an exercise to give you a taste of how we work with this material. If you want to call it a meditation, you can call it a meditation or an exercise. It doesn't matter what you call it. So we start off with recall thinking of yourself as a static entity that has never changed and never will change and being unaware that we are non-static, that we change all the times and we're capable of more change. And try to identify really, you know, personal examples like uh, we make a mistake and we say, I'm so stupid, I never learn. I always make the same mistake. I'll never be able to understand that. You know, there are many, many examples if we uh, start uh, examining ourselves in which we think that we're never going to change. We never have changed and we never will change. This is the way I am. That's me. Then think of the disturbing emotions that arise based on that unawareness that we change and we can change. We become rigid. You know, this is, we can't change, so we become rigid, stiff. We become afraid of uh, trying anything new. We lack self-confidence. Can have low self-esteem based on that. Many, many disturbing emotions and attitudes that would arise from thinking that we never can change, we never will change. These are doctrinally based disturbing emotions. And then think of the destructive physical, verbal, and mental behaviors that have come from these disturbing emotions. Like for instance, uh, that uh, you might think as you get older that I haven't changed, my body can still do, I can still do what I did when I was a young person. So you have arrogance, and we're inflexible. And so in our behavior, we try to lift things that we can't really lift anymore, or uh, stay up all night partying, you know, which we're really not able to do anymore, and so on. So we act in all sorts of destructive ways 
And then you think of the suffering and the problems that you experience as a result of that. You know, like I go to India and of course I can eat salad. I eat salad at home. Of course I can eat salad in India because I've not changed, nothing has changed. And then we get, so we're very arrogant and we get sick. I'm sure we've all had our experiences. And then we generate the determination to be free of this suffering that this unawareness brings, brings us and to be free of its cause, that unawareness. Unawareness that I'm, uh, I don't realize that I'm non-static, that I changed, I have changed. That determination to be free, that's called renunciation. I really want to be free of that. This is just thinking in that, you know, ignorant way just brings me a lot of suffering. And I can be free of it because it's not true that I haven't changed and I can't change. And then you think about situations in which I have changed to demonstrate to ourselves that we've changed. I'm not like a baby anymore. I uh, have uh, adopted to different conditions and I've lived in different places or changed jobs or you know, gotten into different relationships. I have changed. So it is possible to get free of this misconception because it's false. And I will be able to change in the future as I get older and as situations change. I'm capable of adapting to new situations. And then we practice Donglen, giving and taking. We imagine taking away from ourselves, removing that unawareness and the disturbing emotions and destructive behavior and the suffering, all, the whole thing. We imagine taking that away from us and then giving ourselves the correct understanding and the flexibility and the adapting behavior and so on that will bring us more happiness. So as we breathe in, we imagine withdrawing from ourselves you know, you don't have to be too graphic in your visualization or imagination, but just drawing in from yourself all this misconception. If you want, you can do it in a very simplistic way, you know, drawing it in and dissolving back into your mind and then out of your mind, <laughs> projecting the correct understanding. Uh, of course, you can refine that, but uh, this is a very gross way of imagining it. It's like having a vacuum cleaner and you suck in all the pollution, you know, the dirty air and stuff that's, that's polluting your mind. And then you, you know, as you breathe out an exhaust fan that, uh, you know, blows out the correct. Because that's what it actually is. This misconception, this ignorance is like a pollution, a mental pollution. So we do this donglen with ourselves. Okay, that's the simple version, the short version of the meditation. If you want to go further, then we think about other people who have the same problem to think that they're static and the disturbing emotions and destructive behavior and problems that they have because of that. And then uh, with compassion, may they be free of this and then do the donglen with them. And then it's not just that we consider ourselves static, we consider other people static, that they're never gonna change. My partner is always like this and they never change, they're always demanding, they're always this, they're always that. And all the problems, the disturbing emotions, the anger that we get, and the yelling at them, and all of that that we get. 
We don't lend with ourselves. And we deal based with on the determination to be free of that. And then the problem that others have, the same thing. It's especially uh, uh, pertinent when they think that I don't change. You ever have a partner that uh, is like that, who uh, thinks that, you know, our parents think that we're still 12 years old and they treat us as if we're still 12 years old when we go home, tell us what to eat and when to go to sleep and like that. <laughs> then don't lend with them about that. No, this is a fuller version of uh, uh, the exercise. And you see how relevant working with all this is in terms of our own personal experience. It's not just abstract philosophy. And there are similar exercises like this that you can do throughout complete uh, uh, presentation and study of the uh, tenant systems. Right? I have an article on my website that outlines all of the um, exercises you know, for each of the tenant systems. Okay, two more points about Vaibhashika. One is that uh, they also assert a selflessness of phenomenon that the body exists, the body and mind exists as the residence of the Atman or as the possession of the Atman or as something that it can control. Like that example I used of uh, uh, a salad. You know, I'm permanent, I, you know, I never change so I can eat salad anywhere. It's, a, it's a, something that I make use of, my food. No. And I never change so of course I can always eat the same food and it won't make me sick. Okay, and the, the second point, which gives us our transition to Sautrantika, is that uh, uh, according to Vaibhashika, the basis for imputation of the self, of the person, is the mere collection of the five aggregates that simultaneously are with it. Self is an imputation on all five aggregates, so body, mind, emotions, etc. So they say that uh, um, all of them have to be present in order to, well, no, let's, let me change that. There are two types of phenomenon. One is imputedly knowable and one is self-sufficiently knowable. Imputedly knowable is that uh, uh, in order to cognize it, to see it, you have to first, and together with it, have all the parts appear. Uh, or you have to have the basis for imputation appear, put it that way. So, uh, water in a glass is made up of all the drops, all the parts. So to see the, the, the water in the glass, we'd have to see all the drops of water that are there, so that's imputedly knowable. And something is uh, um, self-sufficiently knowable, they would say, if you don't have to see all the parts. This is Vaibhashika. Okay. Uh, we see a, uh, a portrait of uh, just somebody's, uh, the upper part of their body, and we're not seeing the whole body. So, to see the body, you'd have to see the whole body, according to Vaibhashika. So, now, Vaibhashika says that when you see body of somebody, that uh, because I'm not seeing 
simultaneously the mind and the emotions and everything like that. I'm just seeing the person. So that's self-sufficiently knowable. I don't have to see all the basis of imputation to see the person. So they say that the self is self-sufficiently knowable because in order to see um, in order to know the self, you don't have to see all the parts simultaneously. Later, like Sautrantik and others will say, just seeing one part is sufficient. Поэтому, that you're seeing, you know, the ba a basis as, as well as uh, what's imputed on it. Mm? That's not clear, I'm sorry. No, no, it's clear. Now I got it. Self-sufficiently means that... Uh, the thing is just smack in front of your uh, consciousness. So even though the uh, a body is uh, imputed on all the parts, then Vibhashika says that uh, you, if you're only seeing part of the body, you can say, I'm seeing the body, but you're not seeing all the parts. So that whole basis is not appearing. Whereas Sautrantika will refute that and say that uh, actually you are seeing part of the body and that's enough. You have to say that uh, the basis of imputation is appearing simultaneously. It's not self-sufficiently knowable. So that has a lot of implications, but uh, uh, let's put that aside for the moment. That's what's called the subtle selflessness of a person it deals with that issue. First of all, we have the Sautrantika coarse selflessness of a person, which is a non-implicative negation. So there is no such thing as an Atman, a static, partless, independently existing Atman living inside the body and mind uh, as its possession and controlling it and so on, its residence. So there's no way to establish my existence as a person by claiming that I'm an Atman, because there's no such thing as an Atman. So non-implicative is that after the negation, the object to be negation has been negated. You only have a conceptual understanding of one thing, a negation phenomenon, not any affirmation phenomenon. Remember, the implicative negation was that object on the table is not a tablecloth. It affirmed that there's some object on the table. The non-implicative one would be, there is no tablecloth on the table. Doesn't imply, it doesn't leave any, it doesn't throw any understanding of, uh, of anything positive. It just says there's, there's no tablecloth there. So here, our negation is there is no Atman. There's no such thing as an Atman that is the self of a person. So it's impossible to establish that I exist by claiming that I'm Superman because there is no such thing as Superman. Nobody exists that way. Then, so that's doctrinally based, that we believe that we exist as an Atman. Now, the subtle selflessness is that the self can be established as, we can establish that it exists because it is self-sufficiently knowable. So we're refuting the Vibhashika position, uh, refining it. And it automatically appears like that. So, for instance, there's this voice going on in our head 
So we think, that's me. We worry about me. What do people think about me? As if you could talk about me and know me independently of behavior, body, personality, anything like that. Just me. I don't really know you. What in the world does that mean? You can only know another person by knowing something about them. You can't just know a person. You're such a terrible person. Well, their behavior may be terrible, but you can't just say you. You or me, they're not self-sufficiently knowable. You can only know them, think about them, talk about them in terms of some aspect of their basis of imputation. Doesn't have to be the whole basis, like Sautranta, like Vashika said. Just some basis is enough. So we can have our first slide. So, how does cognition work? In moment one, for Vibhashika, we have an externally existent body, and it is an objective fact. Sautrantika makes this distinction between objective phenomenon and metaphysical ones. Metaphysical, objective phenomenon can be known both conceptually and non-conceptually. Uh, metaphysical is only conceptual, like categories. So externally, both Vibhashka and, and Sautrantika would agree, externally there is an objective body and as a uh, imputation on it, a person. So there's actually a person there. It's a whole body, and it's a person. Um, oh, this has to be changed. I'm sorry. I had made some correction, and I didn't make the correction in this. So there is in moment two of Vibhashika, the sensory cognition of the person, so now we see the person, right? You see the body. Um, but actually, let's forget about this uh, slide because uh, it's confusing. I'm sorry, I didn't have a chance to correct it. Okay, here we have externally, there's a body and uh, um, a mind and all these sort of things, and person is an imputation on it. So. What happens when we, when we see it? Vibhashika says that there is just a mental hologram. When we see the mental holograms that uh, uh, um, you know, light comes into our eyes and you know, goes through all the neurons and stuff like that, and then that's translated into some like mental hologram, some image that we see. Vibhashika? Vibhashika also asserts that. Uh, this is what I had wrong before. So when you see the person, when you, when you look at that, let's say you just see the, you don't see the whole body. Or you just see the body. I'm sorry, you see the okay. body, the okay. whole body. Now let's, let's, I'm sorry, this is confusing. And I didn't write it down. So I'm having to create it as I, as I speak. Okay, I look at this body over here, and it's a person, but I'm not seeing the whole basis for imputation. 
uh, seeing the mind and the emotions and all of that. I just see a body. So when I, that, that's sitting there. Objectively. Now I, I look, and so now moment two, and what type of hologram is there that appears in my mind? Not in my mind, as if it were a box, but what appears? A person and a body. But Vaibhashika would say that that is self-sufficiently knowable, the person is self-sufficiently knowable because the whole basis, the mind and the other things, don't appear. Okay? So, Sautrantika says that, well, there's the body with a person on it, with a person as an imputation on it, that's moment two, the hologram. First moment, I'm just uh, paying attention to the body, and the second moment, I am paying attention to both the body and the person. And it's imputedly knowable because the whole basis for imputation doesn't have to appear. The mind doesn't have to appear. It's sufficient if just part is there. That's already Sautrantika, yeah? Sautrantika. This is very profound because it's, we're talking about uh, the relation between whole and parts. I'm sitting here and I look around me and I see only part of a room. I don't see the whole room. I don't see the walls behind me. Can I see that I'm in a room? By just seeing part of it. This is the, the issue that we're talking about. Vaibhashika would say, no, I can't see the whole room, the whole basis. So I don't know that I'm in a room. I can just see maybe this is a stage setting in a theater and there's only you know the props of three walls. And they have a point. That could be, that could be. You know, maybe there's no wall behind me. Maybe this isn't a room. Maybe I'm in a theater. On the stage. And Sautrantika says, come on. You know? You're in the room. You can see that you're in the room. Don't be silly. Right? You just see, you know, a picture of somebody, the portrait, the upper part of their body. Come on, you know they have a rest of the body. It's not that they are just an upper part of a body. You know, it's interesting. How do you know things? How do you know the whole? If you, can you, do you have to see all the parts? Or can you just see some of the parts? So the subtle selflessness of a, of a person is that there's no such thing as a self-sufficiently knowable person, either me or anybody else. So you can't say that I, how, what establishes that I exist is that I worry about myself all the time. You exist because I'm constantly thinking of you. One, it's not true. We're not constantly every moment of our existence since we were a baby thinking of you. And secondly, I can't possibly think of you unless I'm thinking of also your name or what you look like or your behavior or something about you. I can't just think about you. Minimum, basic minimum, there's the mental word you. Как минимум, абсолютный минимум That's это basis of imputation of the слово ты как основа для обозначения личности. Okay, that's the subtle selfness of a, of a person. Now, this is what is uh, unique in uh, Tsongkhapa. There's what's known as the true aspectarian interpretation of Sautrantika and the false aspectarian. This is based on two different Indian text. I mean, it's not that uh, uh, one is based on a valid text and one is not. There are two interpretations. 
So the true aspectarian, well, let's do the false aspectarian first, what Tsongkhapa refuted. They say that moment one, what, well, what am I seeing? Они говорят, что когда мы что-то видим, то в первый момент... A body is not just colored shapes or pixels uh, in just one moment, like a snapshot. A body also, I mean, there's other sense information. There's smell, there's physical uh, sensation of touch, there's uh, sound, taste if you wanted to taste the person. And they don't just exist for one moment. We only see one moment but at a time, but they don't just exist for one moment. You know, the next moment you take a picture and it moved, so it looks different. We're seeing different colored shapes. So, a body, a whole, and a person is then conceptually synthesized, put together in terms of all the sense information and um, extending over time. So, it's in a conceptual cognition, not non-conceptual like uh, uh, the true aspectarians would say, but it's in the, but the false ones would say that uh, externally there's just colored shapes. Actually, body, person, things like that, they're only conceptual constructs. Conceptual syntheses is the actual term. So, they would say that a person and whole and these sort of things don't have objective reality. They're just conceptual constructs. Well, Tsongkhapa says, I mean, although this position makes a lot of sense, if you think about it, it's not unreasonable. It really sounds right. Tsongkhapa says, come on, when you look at a photograph of, let's say, a portrait, this is the true aspectarian uh, view, which was held in India. I mean, Tsongkhapa is just upholding a view that was there already. When I look at a photograph, which is really what our sense cognition is like, just one moment, colored shapes, I am, at, you know, even though there's only part of a body, you know, their portrait, I am actually seeing a body and I am actually seeing a person. They are objective imputations. Whereas the false aspectarian would say that they are just, uh, in a sense, uh, conceptual imputations. Right? You have a mental synthesis of colored shapes and a body as an imputation on it and a person as an imputation on it. So it's still an imputation, but it's only conceptual in your head, not objectively out there. And what Tsongkhapa was really worried about was because the most popular view at his time was this false aspectarian, which, by the way, there are many uh, uh, Tibetan schools that still uh, explain that way, that uphold this view, valid view based on Indian texts. What he was worried about that concerned him was that misunderstanding this false aspectarian view 
can lead to a nihilist position that it doesn't matter what anybody does because there are no persons objectively. It's just, in, in, there's no cause and effect. It's just conceptual. Uh, so you have to go beyond that. Tsongkhapa thought that the misconception is that this false aspectarian view refutes objective cause and effect. It's a denial of the objective cause and effect. False aspectarian view, a correct understanding, or at least my understanding of what I think is the correct understanding, as some people have, some teachers have explained it to me, is that cause and effect is still valid, but it is within the context of concept of cause and effect. Still valid, still works. It's not denying cause and effect. Uh, it's just not objectively out there. You know, all of this uh, is, uh, um, what should we say, hinted at in the whole discussion of if you dream killing a person, is it still destructive and do you still experience suffering as a result? And the conclusion is yes. Not the same as killing somebody externally, but it's still destructive. There's anger, there's, you know, carrying out uh, an, a violent act. There's no, it's not complete because the person doesn't die. Nevertheless, it's still destructive and it still causes suffering. So this is similar to that discussion in uh, the Buddhist text. Okay. One more point about Sautrataka, which uh, will then be uh, taken up by uh, uh, Chittamatra. Uh, and this is that uh, we have to understand that all noble, validly knowable phenomenon have something called an individual defining characteristic mark. Uh, this is like a definition, the defining nature, you know, the, the defining mark it's called. Uh, it's not literally a mark. Yeah. Defines the um, individuality of the item. In a simplistic way, we can think of it as a barcode. Mm -hmm. Now, we have the uh, one of the aggregates, one of the mental factors, is called distinguishing. A lot of people translate it as recognition. That is misleading. It's distinguishing. Distinguishing reads the barcode. When I look at you, there's the, the mental factor of distinguishing is, is paying attention to the barcode and distinguishing this individual from everyone else that does not. And distinguishing these colored shapes from the colored shapes of the, of the chair next to you. Otherwise, you can't, it's just a field of pixels, colored shapes. Everybody has that, even animals, insects can distinguish light from dark. Can distinguish hot from cold. You don't have to know what it is. You don't have to know a name for it. Non-conceptual cognition. Just distinguish. So, Sautrantika asserts that every validly knowable phenomenon has existence established by its individual defining characteristics. And so it's like this, this character, this, this mark, this barcode, it's like it uh, uh, encapsulates some item with plastic and it establishes that it is a thing. And it's not merely the referent 
object of mental labeling with categories and designation with words. Here you have an object, right? I can distinguish this thing that I'm holding in my hand from my hand, for example. And it has a barcode inside it that makes it, it encapsulates, it puts a, a boundary around it and makes it a thing, right? From the molecules of the air and the molecules of my finger and so on. Now, <clears throat> categories, they have what's known as composite features. It's like the barcode, but it is a composite of all the things, of all the barcodes of items that would fit into that. So think of the supermarket. The categories are like the bins in which they keep different kinds of fruit. Now, all of these items, like what I'm holding in my hand, have their own individual barcode and the category, the bin that it would fit into has part of what's in a barcode of all of them. So it's a composite. So the barcode inside this object not only has the power to establish it as a, an individual item, a thing, but it also has the power to be able to establish it as fitting into that bin, that one bin in the supermarket. And that bin has a, uh, a little uh, um, piece of paper above it that says strawberries. And that bin has a, uh, a little uh, um, piece of paper above it that says strawberries. And so this barcode establishes, has the power to mean that it belongs in this bin and it will be called a strawberry. It's a strawberry bin and because it's in the strawberry bin, it's a strawberry because it has the barcode that has the power to make it fit into that bin. So that barcode has the power to do both, make it a thing and fit into, be the referent object of the category, uh, you know, belongs in that category and it is fitting to be, it's what the word, the object, the, the, um, what the word signifies, signifies this thing. It's a strawberry. And it's not merely the power of, you know, saying that it, that it goes in this bin. Saying that it's called the strawberry, it has to have the barcode as well. There's so it is by the power of, of the barcode and not merely by the power of the bins and the words. So that's the Sautrantika position. This is objective reality. It's an actual item. It's a thing that I can see. I can distinguish it from my hand when I'm holding it. And it's objective reality that it fits into a certain bin in the supermarket and is called the strawberry. That's objectively correct and real. It is a strawberry. And it fits in the strawberry bin, not in the cherry bin. Now, this is going to be a big topic that is going to be refined by first Chittamatra, then Sautrantika, then Prasangika. But you have to understand the basic idea here. 
and as practical exercise. It's very practical to understand this. И это очень практично, если мы сможем это понять с помощью упражнений. We think of all the categories that we fit into. I am a man or a woman. I am Russian or American. I am an adult or a child. I am, you know, I do this job or I do that job. You know, all these categories that we fit into. And think of the problems that you have when you deny or ignore some of those categories that you objectively fit into. Right? We tend to just identify with some of the categories that we fit into. Um, like, I am a woman, and then, you know, um, women's rights, and, uh, or I am a, a businessman, and you forget about, you know, family, or I am whatever. And you have a lot of problems when we don't integrate all the different categories that we objectively fit into. And we have this very much with other people. We have a partner, and we might fit them into the category only of sexual object, and not really consider that they have feelings, and they have their own wishes and desires, and so on. Just, you know, they fit in one category that we want them to fit into. We deny the other ones. You get a lot of problems from that. So the problem is that we are not distinguishing the whole barcode. We're just you know, reading a little part of it. So you have a whole exercise like what we did before in terms of uh, the different categories that we fit into and the problems that we have when we ignore or deny some of them. The same thing with how we regard others and how they regard us and how they regard others and themselves. Okay, so that completes Vaibhashika and Sautrantika. So please think about this over lunch. We'll meet after an hour and a half. And in our first session, which will uh, only be 45 minutes, we want to make it a short one. Since people often are tired after lunch, we'll have opportunity for asking questions about this. That way, our last session will be an hour and a half, which will give sufficient time to cover Chittamatra. Okay, thank you.